I've been to every single country in the Middle East, and they all seem to have something in common. In each, there's a story circulating of Chinese peddlers who speak unaccented Arabic. The story always goes something like this. You know, I've heard of Chinese peddlers who speak perfect Arabic working here in my country. I haven't actually met one, but my neighbor told me her aunt has a friend who met one, or I met somebody who told me he's heard there were a whole group of them in another city. They speak Moroccan Dereja very well. They speak Levantine Arabic perfectly. Whatever the country, whatever the dialect, however hard it is for outsiders to learn, there's supposedly a Chinese peddler who's mastered it. But again, no one ever seems to have met the peddler personally. Why is this idea of a Chinese peddler speaking fluent Arabic so pervasive? It seems to me that it's the confluence of two ideas. One is that Arabs feel that China is everywhere in the Middle East. And compared to the past, that's true. Over the last two decades, China's economic ties to the Middle East have drastically increased, and there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese working and living across the region. The second idea is that the Chinese are extraordinarily forward-thinking, and they're investing in the Middle East's long-term future. This may or may not be true, but it feels like a reflection of what many Arabs hope is the case. And in that lies an interesting story. There is definitely a fairly negative view of China. I would imagine for some elements of the political elite, there is disquiet and fear that potentially China could harm relations. Iran is in a complicated situation. On the one hand, obviously, it needs China. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Chair of Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And this is the China in the Middle East podcast series. In this episode, we'll explore how groups all over the Middle East view China, specifically looking at the Gulf region and Iran. We'll tackle regional perspectives of China at a cultural level, a political and diplomatic level, and at an economic level. When oil prices boomed in the 1970s, tens of thousands of students from the Gulf went to the West for university degrees. They studied law, engineering, business, and other fields, and they played a central role in modernizing their countries. By the early 2000s, a growing number were choosing to go east to China, where many studied science or medicine before returning home. Mohamed Sideri is the head of Asian studies at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh. What's interesting is that a lot of these returnees now, especially in the case of Saudi Arabia, are becoming very strong pro-China promoters in the context of Gulf discussions about that country, particularly on social media platforms, but also on traditional platforms as well. This is a normal, natural process or outcome of just the fact that these people have lived in China for so long, have been inculcated with a very positive impression. They see China as a country that's made tremendous economic strides in the last 40 years. As they look forward to their own post-oil future, the China model, or rather their idealized notion of what the China model represents, is very attractive to them. They're sort of contributing to this very interesting phenomenon I see in the Gulf, which is the Gulf becoming sort of an ideological echo chamber 
with respect to China, where a lot of officials, a lot of media journalists and specialists, as well as academics, are becoming increasingly very conversant in Chinese political vocabularies, frameworks, and other critical terms, and are contributing to the construction of a very positive imagining about China and its role in the region in recent years. The phenomenon isn't limited to the Gulf. China's public diplomacy for the Middle East is working. Across the Middle East and North Africa, public perception of China remains high. There was a Pew survey that was issued, and it showed that actually China still retained, at least in the Middle East and in Africa, very high pluralities of positive perceptions among the populations there which contrasts very sharply with the downturn that its image has experienced elsewhere around the world. Iranians, however, seem more skeptical. Ariane Tabatabai is an Iran expert and an associate political scientist at RAND. She explains that many Iranians feel they need China, but they don't necessarily like or trust China. There is definitely a fairly negative view of China, and I think that's true of the business community in Iran, of officials and of the population more generally as well. And one thing that is very striking to me, and I think is a really good example of this, is if you go to a store and you're trying to buy whatever item, say a bike, the first question that a lot of people will ask is, well, is it good quality? And relatedly, is it made in China? The shopkeeper will very often say, no, it's not Chinese. It's made in Turkey or Pakistan or whatever other country you can think of, but definitely not China. And so it's it's part of incentivizing people to buy something. You tell them that it's not made in China. Tabatabai even says that it was a deep distrust of Chinese goods that helped push Iranians toward a nuclear deal with the United States and Europe. They wanted more European-made Western products. She describes a sense among Iranians that they had been stuck with inferior Chinese products and that the lack of choice frustrated them. You have that resentment that Iran is getting sort of subpar products from from China and that it doesn't have a choice. And I think that's the part that is the most challenging for people to accept is the fact that you don't have a marketplace where you are able to pick between your Chinese and your American product. You only have one, and that is typically not your first choice. But the mistrust of China is beginning to change. At the same time, though, what you do have is a new generation of Iranians who are much more interested in China and who try to understand China a lot better than their predecessors. 20, 30 years ago, it was essentially unheard of for Iranian businessmen, businesses in general, Iranian officials to learn Chinese. Today, that's something that is happening more and more frequently. Iran still lags behind Gulf countries in terms of numbers of students studying Chinese, but the Iranian government is trying to change that. In fact, the Iranian Ministry of Education floated this proposal whereby Chinese would be taught in Iranian schools alongside Arabic and English, and in part to sort of decrease the monopoly of English, air quotes, in the Iranian education system. So there is an attempt to try to understand China more, to try to have this cultural affinity that Iran has had by virtue of having exchanged with Europe for centuries and that it hasn't had with China as much. Chinese officials often like to frame their discussions with Iran by referring to both countries' histories as empires, trading silks, porcelain, and spices along the Silk Road. I asked Tabatabai if that resonated with Iran at all, 
if they use the same rhetoric as the Chinese do. The Iranians also do because, you know, they see themselves in some ways as an ancient civilization that is, if not on par with China, a, a great civilization that should be sort of seen as almost equal to China. So yeah, they do have that. And Iranian officials will often talk about the centuries-long cooperation and partnership between the two countries. But that sense of being on equal footing with China in terms of historic empires doesn't reflect the imbalance of Iran and China's relationship. The Iranian government very clearly understands that it's a junior partner to China. And while the general public may resent China for that, the Iranian government is still courting Beijing. Iran is in a complicated situation. On the one hand, obviously, it needs China more so than China needs Iran. That is clear. China today remains one of the primary importers of Iranian oil, and it remains one of the main exporters of goods to Iran. So Iran is highly reliant on China today in 2020, more so than it was a few years ago due to U.S. sanctions. So it doesn't really have the luxury of turning its attention away fully from China. Iran is also in conflict with the United States, so China provides something of a buffer for Iran. But the United States seems to figure into every Middle Eastern country's relationship with China. As Mohammad Sudari, the young Saudi, explained. I think politically also, for a segment of Gulf elites, particularly at this geopolitical moment, and I think this is also true with regards to Iran and Turkey, they see themselves as having very tense relationships with a variety of different Western states, the United States and the European Union states. As the United States has given signs that it is pulling up stakes in the region, China has become an increasingly attractive partner. They therefore see their relationship with China as being very critical to their well-being. And they have really no interest in creating any antagonisms with Beijing. And I think what gives that added importance is that a lot of these elites are genuinely appreciative of China's emphasis and respect to national sovereignty and the principles of non-interference. I mean, regardless of how we appraise these values and principles and how they actually play out, I do think a lot of elites on the ground appreciate this rhetorical support that China extends to them. And Gulf states know that antagonizing China wouldn't help them. At least in the case of the Gulf, I think People don't want to rock the boat because they feel they already have too many problems with the United States, with the EU, and it would not serve anyone's goals to have problems or issues with China at the current moment. But everyone seems to understand that the question is not whether to choose between the United States and China, but instead how to balance between the two countries. I would imagine for some elements of the political elite, there is disquiet uh, and fear that potentially China could harm relations, that these attempts to develop deeper ties with China could harm their relationship with the United States, although I think that is not a mainstream perspective among the elites at this point. However, Gulf states are still aware of the limits of their relationships with China, as Suderi observes. I think certain elites are aware that there are limits to how far China can potentially play a role in serving their own regional interests. I, know, I think a lot of them have really taken to heart the lessons or the experience of dealing with China from 2011-2014 when China issued multiple vetoes in the UN with regards to Syria. Iran has had some of the same disappointments, as Tabatabai explains. 
They go into the relationship sort of clear-eyed, understanding that China will work with them when its interests dictate that, and it won't when its interests point it to the U.S. or other partners. Remarkably, China's maintained strong ties with both Iran and the Gulf states. So I asked Mohammed Suderi how Gulf states viewed China's relationship with Iran. My feeling is that insofar as GCC Sino relations go, Iran is not that big of a variable. Because if you look at the data and sort of the facts on the ground, China oftentimes, while emphasizing the need for solidarity with Iran, when push comes to shove, has not played the role of an alternative for Iran in its face-off with the West. I think when they look at that particular pattern of behavior and engagement, and when they also compare the collective GCC economic importance to China in comparison to that of Iran, it becomes very obvious that China is not necessarily going to sacrifice its relationship with the GCC states for a closer relationship with Tehran. Cultivating strong political ties with China and ignoring some of China's less desirable traits, like its relations with unfriendly states, is a key tool for ensuring continued economic ties with China. For the Gulf, China is the world's most important growth market. Suderi explains. This is particularly important post-2014, where we've seen a sustained decline in oil prices and a deceleration in global economic uh, growth rates. And as the Gulf looks beyond oil, China figures into that world too. They see China as playing a very critical role for their sort of post-rentier economic systems that they want to construct. So they see China as a potential source of capital. You can see that in a very pronounced fashion in terms of a lot of the industrial zones that are being created, whether in Dukum, in Oman, or Jezan in Saudi Arabia, or sort of these new important national projects in the case of Kuwait, like Silk City, where China plays a very important role. It's always rhetorically connected to the Belt Road Initiative, this influx of capital. And they also see China as a potential catalyst for the growth of different non-oil sectors. Like the rest of the region, Iran is also involved with China's Belt and Road Initiative. Tabarabai explains. Belt and Road wasn't really a thing in Iranian political discourse for a number of years. It's only fairly recently, and I would say especially post-JCPOA, that Iranians have started to really emphasize the initiative because they see it, they understand that it's very important to China. And if they're going to dissuade China from following the U.S. lead, in the context of the maximum pressure campaign, and bearing in mind that you have the U.S.-China trade issues that are sort of looming large and that do play a role in Chinese acceptance of the maximum pressure campaign. To Iran, the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, is now an important tool for incentivizing China to maintain ties with Iran. One way has been to try to leverage Belt and Road, has been to try to get China to continue working on on projects and to offer them really good deals, better deals than they would have gotten otherwise, to try to sort of mitigate or at least make up for the fact that there there's a risk associated with working in Iran. And Iranians are aware that those incentives for China means Iranians themselves don't always get the best deals. 
And many of them said, look, you know, we would, in an ideal world, we would be less reliant on China, but we understand that that may not be the case, that Europe, certainly not the United States, but Europe as well, won't be able to fully normalize economic exchange with Iran. And so we need China to stay here and to continue engaging in building projects and increasing exchange with Iran. Is China really the future for the Gulf? A lot of people seem to be planning on it, but Mohammed Sideri isn't so sure. I think a lot of people also don't take into consideration the role of black swans, right? Whether in the context of within China itself, or just simply how the world is going to adjust to a risen China. We've seen that there's tremendous Middle Eastern interest in China, but the opposite isn't true. There isn't tremendous Chinese interest in the Middle East. In the region, China enjoys a positive image and people are optimistic about China's future. But however high people's hopes run, expectations in the Middle East remain largely clear-eyed about China's future there. China will have a future role in the region, but China isn't poised to fundamentally transform it. Next time on the podcast, we look at U.S. and Chinese competition and cooperation in the Middle East. We talk to two experts I admire, Don Murphy and Bob Manning. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this is the China in the Middle East miniseries. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.